Hello and welcome to 100 Days in Mexico. I'm Melanie and this is the story of how a 100 day solo road trip, surfing my way down the Pacific coast of Mexico, changed my life forever. Ready to go on a road trip? Let's go. Episode two, perfection. T minus five years. Hello, I'm Melanie. Hi, Melanie, responds the bored chorus. The cramped meeting hall stunk like burnt coffee. Clutching the podium, I surveyed the 15 or so miserable looking people in front of me. I opened my mouth to continue, but managed only a sob. I tried to take a deep breath to compose myself. Eventually, I managed to say, I feel like, well, I feel like I can't get Aaron. I feel like there's always a monster sitting on my chest. I can't concentrate. I can't breathe. Anxiety feels like it's compressing my rib cage all day, every day. Right now, unless I'm chewing. Chewing makes the monster go away. But as soon as I stop chewing, I need more. Hunger is the only feeling I know. I'm either hungry or chewing. T minus 20 years. Faith, I was taught, is being sure of what you hope for and certain of what you do not see. I memorized this definition from the New Testament of the Bible, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. In fact, I memorized the entire chapter and the one before it. Actually, I memorized most of Hebrews. From the time I was in third grade to the time I graduated high school, I memorized over half of the New Testament because that's what a high-achieving, rural, middle-class, wholesome, Jesus-loving, starving-for-recognition middle child does. I had faith. I scrupulously followed the instructions of my pastor and the youth leader. I kept unfailing to my daily devotional time of prayer and studied scripture with intensity. I never smoked, drank, or did more than kiss a boy until well after high school. Naturally, every Sunday, my family and me were in church. We attended a midweek service too. I always looked forward to the services because as a homeschool kid, They provided me opportunity to play with other kids other than my siblings. As a teenager, I played guitar in the church band with all of my brothers and my dad. Some Sundays, it was me on bass, my younger brother on drums, my older brother on guitar, and my dad singing and playing harmonica. These were undoubtedly some of my mom's proudest moments. But aside from playing and the music, I invested myself in faith so fully and so blindly for one reason. I was promised by my Bible and by my Sunday school teachers that this kind of devotion would guarantee me a mansion in heaven after I died and would spare me from God's righteous wrath dealt by the flames of hell. Having blind faith in what I was taught, I spent my childhood, quote, working out my faith with fear and trembling, unquote, as the Bible puts it terrified to screw anything up. Heaven would be mine one day if I just had faith. 
On January 13, 1991, at the age of seven, I had my first powerful spiritual experience. Alone in the basement of my parents' house, I was feeling sad and lonely. But then, by then, I had already accepted such feelings as normal for me. A presence overwhelmed me, surging through the room in a rush of energy. I began to vibrate. My cells were shaking. The sensation was so powerful and tangible. I was overcome and I wept uncontrollably. One of my brothers found me and attempted through my heaving sobs to extract an explanation of what had happened. I struggled intensely to make sense of the event. Synapses fired, electrical currents lashing through my young brain, seeking familiar pathways to set in context this otherworldly event. The currents landed on the religious narrative I had consumed each week in children's church. I pieced together the best explanation that I could. I told my brother that I had asked Jesus into my heart, and in that moment, I had been born again. Indeed, I had been. Around the same age, I remember my first feelings of not being full, wanting something more, someplace else. Although my mom made huge dinners for us, she liked at lunchtime for my siblings and I to learn some independence. So we normally fended for ourselves at lunch, having finished homeschooling for the day. My mom kept the freezer and pantry stocked with all stuff we can make ourselves, pizza rolls, mac and cheese, chicken nuggets. I clearly remember fighting over who got the last chicken nugget or the final scoop of noodles. There were five of us. It's not cheap to feed five kids, and my mom was very conservative with money. Who knows, two or three more pizza rolls, and maybe I would have left the table feeling satisfied. Of course, I would have only needed to speak up, letting mom know that I was still hungry. Still very hungry. But polite little Christian girls don't ask for favors that might inconvenience someone else. The flesh was evil and needed to be controlled, I was taught. So I learned to suppress my desires. The first time I remember feeling fat was around age 13, when I started to grow into my woman's body. And I was a little fat, like most middle school girls who can't get enough chicken nuggets and pizza rolls and and affection. In the course of three years, my hips, thighs, and butt went from a size 0 to a size 11. But my chest didn't keep pace, growing from flat to a 32 double A. Which is to say, I started wearing a bra only because my friends were wearing them, not because there was anything to hold up. This was in the mid-1990s when slender legs, a vanishing butt, and huge boobs were preferred by men in media. With massive thighs and no boobs at all, my body escaped the attention of the boys. I would stew in about 20 years of self-hatred before I figured out that all bodies are different, or more, that I was gifted with an athletic body, strong legs and a muscular butt, a big booty deserving of pride. Hunger became an enemy shortly after puberty. It would shadow me, constantly tapping on my shoulder. There was never enough, never enough attention, praise, affection, achievements, awards, recognition, or food. I was, after all, a sinner, blemished from birth, a wretch in the eyes of God. I assumed I was hungry because I hadn't earned the right to be recognized or fed, so I worked harder earned more A's and MVPs, but nothing filled me up. 
I won my first battle with hunger when I was 17. After having my wisdom teeth removed, I couldn't eat for a few days. If you've ever fasted or starved yourself, you know that after a day or two it gets a lot easier. And so it did for me. For two days that I couldn't eat due to pain, but for two weeks that followed, I didn't eat due to self-hatred. It felt like victory. Over the next 10 years, I would repeat these two-week starvation episodes several times, typically hiding them even from myself by calling them cleanses. But it never seemed to matter whether I gained or lost 10 pounds. I still wasn't enough. Being seen. The rush that comes from being seen is like a drug. My heart pounds, my face glows. When I'm in front of other people doing something that not everyone can do at the level I'm doing it, I feel like I matter. Being better than others at something gets me high every time. The more people I surpass, the more attention I receive, the bigger the high. I am nine. I'm crying. It's my birthday. My mom gathered me, my siblings, my cousins, and a friend from church to go bumper bowling. But when we arrive at the lanes, we find out they don't actually have bumpers. Everyone else seems to be bowling better than me. I keep throwing my ball into the gutter. My mom tries to give me a pointer, which only makes me hate her. I sulk off to go buy licorice. I hate bowling to this day. If I can't be the best, I can't enjoy it. I am 11. I'm rehearsing for an upcoming martial arts competition. For hours in my bedroom, I practice the kata. I'm exhausted, pushing myself to try again and again until I can perform the entire routine of kicks, punches, and blocks from memory flawlessly five times in a row. My cousin April is in my class. Two years older than me, she always places higher. No one has suggested I practice. I am motivated by the medal that will be awarded for first place. When the performance arrives, I take first place. April takes second and receives a certificate. April's dad, my uncle, picks us up that evening and drives us to McDonald's for for celebratory ice cream sundaes. I proudly display my gold medal. Inspecting it, April points out that it isn't made of gold at all. It's made of plastic. Well, but... It's a special kind of plastic, my uncle counters. Special plastic on a string. I still feel like a loser. I'm in my sixth grade pink-walled bedroom. I am bent over a thin booklet, barely 40 pages. It is the Gospel of Luke from the New Testament. These are the pages I must memorize. I'm holding the book, but my eyes are closed. I'm reciting it from memory, line by line, verse by verse. Sometimes I peek, ensuring I haven't missed a word. Although I've been memorizing the Bible for years, trying to keep up with my older siblings, this is the first year I'm officially old enough to compete on the Bible quiz team. My goal to become Rookie of the Year. I must answer more questions correctly, reciting more verses word for word than any other rookie that year across the state. And I do. When I receive this honor in front of my parents and my peers, I become... I beam as I accept my trophy and pose for a photo. Around this time, I'm certain I became depressed. 
Something wasn't right. I had all the faith you could ask for. I excelled in every endeavor, from sports to academics to performing arts. The words of well-meaning adults painfully rang in my ears. You are going to change the world. You are unique. You are going places with your life. Even the Bible haunted me. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Philippians 4.13 And the most ear-piercing words of all came from my mother. You can do anything you set your mind to. It was a backpack full of bricks. I couldn't breathe under the weight of the responsibility. The terror of the idea that I might be infinitely powerful yet somehow choose the wrong path, that I might let the whole world down, created intense pressure on my chest. Anxiety plagued me. I couldn't sleep at night. I was unable to get up in the morning. I lay awake writing in my journal about all the ways I was falling short and all the plans I had to fix my flaws. I prayed for God to fix me since I was obviously screwing everything up. My mom had installed wallpaper in my bedroom, a solid color on the bottom, a cute border in the middle, and a print on top. Above the border, I built a second border of my own. Most girls my age hung posters of Hanson or other teeny bopper pop stars, but I hung every certificate and award I had ever received. A horizontal band of glory wrapped around my bedroom. I displayed trophies and medals on my dresser, but there weren't enough. I wasn't enough. I remember walking through my grandparents' front door one day around the age of 14. I anticipated a day of play on the farm, making hay forts in the barn, climbing trees, exploring fields of corn. That particular day, my grandmother remarked, Wow, Melanie, it's so good to see you smile. I haven't seen that face in a long time. I was taken aback. Had I been frowning for months? My mom would much later reveal that she wished she had gotten my hormone levels checked, if only she had known about that sort of thing in those days. And she was right. Something was off in my brain, chemically. But we didn't know. I just learned to live with it. In the 11th grade, my partner and I won the State Division Speech and Debate League. We traveled to Santa Clara, California. Our families followed to watch us debate at the national championship. My back sweated through the cheap polyester pantsuit my mom bought me on clearance at Kohl's. My knees kept locking. I reminded myself to bend them. My stomach churned. I had the runs all morning. I walked unsteadily to the podium and placed my note cards face down. They were there for moral support. I had already memorized my speech. I drew in a long, slow breath. I fixed the judges with my eyes. We, the affirmative team, stand resolved. The 16th Amendment to the United States Constitution should be repealed. I continued for several minutes, expounding on the many reasons to replace the income tax with a national sales tax. Finished, I resumed my seat beside my partner, waiting for the opposing team to rip my argument to shreds. They, re they tried. I returned to the podium again, steadier now, and spoke off the cut cuff as I rebuted their every argument. We took 11th place in the country and received honorable mention. I was crestfallen. Had we won just one more round, we would have received a reward in front of thousands of people. 
My partner was simply relieved. He was sick of four hour and a half long debates per day for three days straight. He was glad to be eliminated. His thinking baffled me. No one would remember our names. At the age of 14, not 17, I took the ACT college entrance exam. My score was average, not good, average. I hadn't received any formal schooling, ever. It might as well have been the worst score ever achieved on a standardized test. It shattered my dream of going to the Air Force Academy. I knew I needed a 27 to be considered. I had scored a 23. I returned home that afternoon absolutely crushed. One by one, I removed each certificate of achievement that wrapped my bedroom walls, crumpling and throwing them away, every last one. I cracked my journal and solemnly penned yet another melancholy poem. Papers on the wall, special plastic on a string. Four long points, short of my dream. I hope you liked this episode. If you did, please head on over to my website, melanielanewilliams.com, and subscribe to become an insider. Every episode has a behind-the-scenes commentary that is available for insiders only. But there's actually a ton of content in that insider section. So head on over, Melanie Lane Williams. Lane is spelled L-A-I-N-E. And check out all the content that's available there. Until next time.